This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. And it's like, can we just have nice things that are not like have derivatives attached to them. Totally. Can I just watch like a basketball <laughs> game and not have like ads coming in in the middle of the basketball game telling me what I can live bet during the basketball? I just want to watch the basketball game. Like I don't, I don't want these things. I I will end this rant by just quoting Marilyn Monroe, who said one of my favorite things ever, which is, "I don't care about money. I just want to be wonderful." And I think like we need so much more of that. Like stop the financialization of everything. I don't care about money. I just want to be wonderful. It would be nice if we just built wonderful products and stopped building financial services components into every single one of them. I know I work in fintech. That's what we do. But like, we need to draw a line somewhere. I agree. Hello. Welcome back to Fintech Recap. My name is Alex Johnson. And joining me as always, the man whose business is fintech every week, Jason Mikula. Jason, how you doing? I'm good. You know, I kind of locked myself into to publishing once a week, and that's okay with me. I am pretty good. It is spring has sprung huh. here in the Netherlands. Tulips are out in full force. So that is something that I'm thankful for. I'm so jealous. We were talking before we started recording that Jason gets to enjoy this magnificent spring with tulips and gorgeous weather and windmills and all kinds of stuff. And I'm dealing with a blizzard in Montana at the moment. So someday it'll be nice weather and I'll be able to brag. June is usually pretty nice, but not yet. Not yet. Yeah, you might be joking about the windmill, but literally on the I loop was. where I walk the dog at the corner, there is a actual windmill. Ugh. And in the bottom floor of it is a amazing, if not slightly expensive butcher shop which I've been to more than one time. So yes, we do actually have windmills. No, no, no. Okay, well, we have to like just end this part of the conversation because I'm going to get way, way, way too jealous of everything. So all right, moving on, we are going to recap some things that have been happening in fintech as we usually do. Jason, would you mind if I went first? Yes, please. Okay, so the thing that's been seemingly soaking up all of the fintech Twitter airwaves the last couple of days is the launch of the Apple High Yield Savings Account. So this is something that we knew was coming. It is a part of Apple's sort of ongoing roadmap for all things financial services. This particular product was launched in collaboration with Goldman Sachs. So this is not one of those things like Buy Now, Pay Later that Apple is doing on its own or mostly on its own. Uh, This one is really much more of a sort of traditional banking as a service arrangement with Goldman Sachs that's supplying the bank charter and holding the deposits. The account itself at the current time pays 4.15% interest, which is... Very competitive, and that's among the highest rates in the industry. It's not maybe quite as impressive as it might have been before we entered this high-rate environment, which is, I guess, sort of a mild critique that I have or a reason I'm not maybe quite as excited about it as other people. But obviously a very strong interest rate. It's only available at the moment, at least, to Apple credit card customers. So you have to have the Apple credit card in order to get access to the savings account, You get access to it by sort of applying, quote unquote, through the Apple wallet. As with many of the things that Apple does, the way to get to it is a little buried. I actually found multiple folks, including Jason, providing sort of tutorials on Twitter for people who wanted to sign up for it because it's not the easiest thing in the world to track down. I actually had to update the software on my iPhone before I could find it. I will say, as with all Apple things, the actual onboarding was very simple. I think I supplied maybe my social security number, and that was about it. You know, clicked a couple of buttons to accept terms and conditions, and within literally, I think, less than a minute, I had the account open. The first thing that they encourage you to do and sort of the kind of initial selling point in a way seems to be moving your sort of cash back that you get from the Apple card, which is kept on Apple's sort of prepaid Apple cash card um, over into savings so that you can get the interest rate applied to the rewards that you're getting through the Apple card. So that's an easy initial thing. You can also move money in from an external account. There is a $250,000 cap on these accounts. So Apple or Goldman or Apple and Goldman have really no interest in sort of pulling in all of those excess deposits that would be uninsured. And I don't know. I mean, Jason, I guess I was A, not terribly surprised by this because we knew it was coming and B, was not 
completely bowled over. I saw some other people on Twitter sort of saying, oh, you know, big banks better be really worried about this. And I I think that's a bit of a misreading and an overreaction. But what was your takeaway? I'm deep sighing already and we're in our first segment. (laughs) I mean, anytime Apple does anything, it gets a disproportionate amount of of press coverage versus anyone else doing it because it's Apple, right? So I, I always try to sort of like contextualize it in that, you know, media slash Twitterverse lens of like, of course, a lot of people are going to talk about this. It's Apple. It's Apple and Goldman together. It's going to drive a news cycle. I mean, I think trying to step back and understand what is the actual impact here or what about this stood out to me. I mean, I think, yes, you know, presumably this is going to roll out to all at least U.S. Apple customers. And they're starting with Apple card, credit card users, because it's simpler from a KYC and onboarding perspective, right? They've already done that with Goldman Sachs, the underlying partner for the credit card. The account opening process was extremely polished, smooth. I will say, and maybe this is because I have a um, an older phone that still has the Touch ID. Once I finished opening the account, I was sort of playing around and, and testing, you know, if I wanted to fund it with like $500, and I literally accidentally funded it when I did not mean to. <laughs> and then once you like clicked a touch ID to authorize it, there's no way to, to cancel it within the UI. Maybe it's a little bit too low friction, at least for me. <laughs> One piece that stood out to me, and, and this has been reported elsewhere, you know, the 4.15% APY is actually meaningfully higher than what Goldman offers on its own account, which currently is 3.9%. Yeah. And, you know, I read this morning the earnings call transcript where David Solomon, Coleman CEO, kind of spoke to this a little bit. And the argument or the response he gave to the analysts who asked this question was they looked at their Apple card portfolio where the overlap was with existing Goldman Marcus savings customers and don't believe that there will be a high amount of cannibalization. So moving people from the Marcus product into Apple to get the higher rate, at least that's what the response on the call was. Yeah, I mean, I do think, I tend to agree with you that I don't think this is necessarily a, you know, a monumental shift in the financial services space. You know, Apple has been very deliberate and incremental in the development of their financial services product strategy. Yep. And, you know, a lot of the headlines are like around that, the 4.15% rate, you know, how many billions, if not trillions of dollars do Americans have sitting at Chase and Wells Fargo earning 0.01% that they could have moved to high yield accounts? Totally. So, you know, whether or not the interest rate here and the ease of opening it is meaningful enough to convince people to move substantial amount of money, I'm skeptical. I mean, I'd love to be proven wrong because Americans are, you know, missing out on, at this point, somewhat meaningful amount of interest. But that's just not the behavior we tend to see with most U.S. consumers. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I sort of chuckle whenever people are like, oh, you know, Apple's offering 4.15% and, you know, Chase is only offering, you know, however many basis points. And it's like, it's just not a good comparison, right? Right or wrong, the reality is that, like, you know, Chase is thrilled to not be competing with Apple, right, for these particular customers. And, you know, Chase is playing a very different game, right? It's not, I mean, it's already flooded with a ton of deposits, as we saw with their recent earnings release. You know, they are using the deposits productively to lend and they're investing it in securities and whatever. And, you know, Apple is is interesting because, you know, I mean, I think Goldman probably is happy to have more deposits. I don't really necessarily think that David Solomon's explanation of why it's not going to cannibalize totally holds water because once Apple rolls this out to people beyond the Apple credit card, presumably there are a lot of Marcus savings customers that use iPhones and are Apple customers. So eventually there might be a little bit more cannibalization. But I mean, to me, from a Goldman Sachs perspective, this is just, you know, Apple's a really strategically important partner. And it was actually reported, I think this morning, that uh, based on maybe the earnings call, that Goldman is uh, strongly considering getting rid of GreenSky, one of its other sort of big sort of indirect businesses that it acquired just a couple of years ago. I mean, I would hazard a guess that part of the consideration at Goldman Sachs is just 
you know, Apple wanted to offer 4.15% and they sort of told us that's what we wanted to do. And that's what we decided to do. I mean, I don't know that Goldman had quite as much leverage in that discussion as they might be sort of presenting on the earnings call. And, you know, I mean, Apple, and maybe this is where we can sort of take the conversation. I mean, the benefit to me from Apple's perspective in doing this, again, they don't need deposits. These aren't their deposits. If they were their deposits, it still wouldn't really matter because Apple has more cash on hand than, you know, any company in the history of capitalism. That's not really the concern. I think the larger play for Apple is, and it kind of goes to how they're connecting the credit card together with the savings account and moving the rewards over. I think they just want more money sitting in people's kind of personal Apple ecosystems, right? So instead of me having, and this is how I use my Apple card today, you know, I use it for a couple of recurring purchases. It's not my main card. I have a little bit of money sitting in that sort of prepaid account because it's just the rewards I get for the minimal use of the credit card, but I don't really do anything with it. And the money that I have sitting in my Apple accounts doesn't meaningfully change my behavior as it relates to interacting with Apple or any of their services or partners. If you could move more money into that ecosystem, kind of in the vein of like a PayPal or like a cash app, maybe, then you're starting to spin that flywheel faster in terms of all of the other sort of value-added activities that spin off of that money. So to me, that seems to be kind of the core animating goal that Apple has. But I don't know. What's your read on that, Jason? No, I think that's right. I mean, Apple has an inherent advantage, one might almost say unfair competitive advantage. <laughs> monopoly, monopoly. Con <laughs> and I mean, they control the hardware. Yeah. And they, on the payment side, have locked out other applications from accessing the NFC chip to, to offer payment services yep. in person at, at point of sale. And they control the operating system. And they historically have been very good at leveraging that to build an ecosystem you know, around consumers that, one, hopefully it offers a lot of utility, which is why consumers you know, continue to use it. But by extension... You know, and I'm 100% an example of this, it locks consumers into that ecosystem where when it's time to upgrade, I would never go get an Android phone or, you know, a PC, a Windows machine, because, you know, the idea of having to migrate the switching cost is just too high. The pieces fit together. And for the most part, not always, particularly with AirPods for some reason, <laughs> uh, for the most part, like everything just works the way it's supposed to. And so to your point, it's like, okay, if you can make the path of least resistance is have my Apple phone is it? and use Apple Pay for transactions, you know, especially in person and, and increasingly in online transactions, and now I have an Apple credit card and Apple BNPL and the extra, you know, money from my rewards gets shuttled into this Apple savings account. They're sort of incrementally building that stack. You know, I, I am a little bit tired of the will Apple become a bank discussion because it just doesn't make any sense right. legally. Like, no, is the answer to that question, right? The answer is no. Yeah. But could Apple do what various fintechs have done? including in a way Cash App, which is weird because Square is a bank, but assemble what I call like a synthetic banking staff yeah. where they partner with underlying service providers to give an end user all of those capabilities. Yeah. So could you imagine a debit card and actually functionally that Apple Cash card where your rewards are sitting, that is a Visa badged account. Like that could quite easily become essentially like an Apple bank account, Apple debit card. Is it? So you kind of see the pieces coming together and Apple, as you mentioned, has more money than God yeah. and it has a long time horizon and they have the patience to sort of put these pieces together and wait for that uh, profit flower to bloom. Have I mixed all my metaphors? That's a good one. No, that's fair. And I think that's an apropos one for you enjoying spring uh, while I'm stuck here in wintry hell. But yeah, I mean, I think... To put a fine point on that, I think the patience thing is the key to understanding what Apple's doing, right? Because it relates to buy now, pay later as well, right? They're rolling it out incrementally. They're making it a little bit sort of painful, actually, to go find and sign up for. Like, they're not trying to jump with both feet into the deep end of financial services right away, but they keep assembling these little incremental pieces necessary to just sort of, like, make it an assumption that everyone's just going to play within their ecosystem. And I think you're right. I mean, the understanding Apple, is Apple going to be a bank? No, they have no interest in taking on that full regulatory burden. 
Are they going to do everything short of actually becoming a bank to control all of the choices that you make in your life, including all of the financial choices you make? Yes, absolutely. And that's going to extend. We see that in what they're doing in fitness and healthcare. We see that what they're doing in identity. We see that in what they're doing around connected home and devices. Like They have an interest in basically being the interface layer between you and everything in your life. That doesn't mean they want to provide the underlying infrastructure for all of those things, because a lot of that is unfun, low-margin work that's heavily regulated. But all of the other stuff, all of the high-touch interfaces, they want to control as much of that as possible. And short of regulators stopping them from doing that, it seems like they're going to just keep assembling all of these little incremental pieces necessary to bring that vision to life. So should we jump to our next story? Yeah, absolutely. So the next one is on actually the neobank that I use here in the Netherlands called Bunk. That's spelled B-U-N-Q. And specifically, uh, kind of two things. I mean, the, the sort of headline news story is that it has filed an application for a U.S. de novo bank charter and accompanying FDIC insurance. The sort of ancillary, and in my opinion, in some ways more interesting story is the fact that it is a profitable neobank, which I'm joking, that's like the real unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> Not the billion valuation. But the reason why that's even more surprising, I think probably particularly for American listeners or, or U.S. financial services practitioners, it hit profitability really without meaningful lending or interchange income, which you might be scratching your head and you're like, well, how is this tell possible? Tell me more. Tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the business of banking is is generally, you know, fee income, which in the U.S. often in the U.S. for neobanks generally means interchange yeah. and net interest margin. Mm -hmm. And the sort of very short analysis there is, one, charging monthly service fees, which for U.S. startups is just anathema, like monthly fee, no, absolutely not. I think the difference in you know the European market or specifically the Dutch market is it's not abnormal to charge a fee for a current account, checking account. And the competitive set, your ABN AMRO, ING, et cetera, do charge such a fee. So from a competitive advantage, disadvantage perspective, you know, it's not as much a problem here as it would be in the US. You know, the second piece is just the wildly lower cost structure. So I was doing kind of a side-by-side -side comparison looking at Bank in 2021 versus Vero. And Bank spent just a shy of 10 million euros on marketing. Do you want to guess how much Vero spent on marketing in 2021? Oh my gosh, I, I can't even, I can't, I just can't. Yeah. What, what is it? Uh, $123 million. Oh, oh, no. dollars. <laughs> um, and, and to sort of make that comparison a little bit more fair, for Bunk, it was 23% of revenue. For Vero, it was 163% oh, of revenue no. generated went to yeah. marketing. Also, on the employee cost-based side, the average Vero salary was about 140 ish thousand dollars in 2021 per employee. Bunks was about 50,000 euros. So again, you have some very substantial sort of cost-based differences. Uh -huh. And then on the revenue side, you know, revenue coming from fees versus interchange. I will say the one sort of big asterisk there, you know, Bunk, fully licensed bank in Europe, in the Netherlands. And for a decent chunk of its history, the ECB key interest rate was negative. Right. And so Bunk was paying, it varied, but call it, you know, half a percent to park its customers' funds at the ECB. So it actually had an interest expense as a result of being a bank. As rates have gone up, that's flipped. And now it is actually earning money from those funds that are parked at the ECB. And so that's really the key tailwind that has allowed it to get to profitability in conjunction with the lower expense base and uh, the fee revenue. I think switching gears quickly, and then I promise I'll let you talk. <laughs> Feel free not to. That's fine, too. You know, the idea of entering the U.S., you know, I, I mentally kind of think of the U.S. as like the Afghanistan of fintechs. It's where empires go to die for yeah. empires. I need to I refine that analogy a little bit. But, you know, N26 entered, left, 
Monzo and Revolut are still operating, but have failed to gain yeah. traction. Monzo tried for a U.S. license, withdrew, hasn't refiled. Revolut pretended that it applied for a license, but never actually filed the paperwork. Yeah. You know, Bunk, does it have some advantages in that it is, you know, profitable? Yes. The draft application made for interesting reading and in that they clearly, their U.S. lawyers clearly know their audience. Referencing, you know, it being a digital community bank with an emphasis on traditional low-risk business model. It quotes CFPB Director Chopra. It quotes Acting Comptroller Zhu. It talks about the idea of being, you know, relationship banking. So it, it's ticking, you know, ticking all the talking points. Hitting, that, yeah, hitting all the all the hotspots. That nice, very nice. But I, I guess I'm just a bit, you know, skeptical from looking at how it operates in the EU yeah. versus the U.S. market that it will really be able to gain meaningful traction Definitely. where we've seen so many other neobanks, you know, both homegrown ones and foreign entrants struggle. I mean, they've stated, Bunk has stated, its target market is for digital nomads and European expats. Alex, do you think there are enough digital nomads and European expats in the U.S.? who are willing to pay a monthly fee for a neobank to make this model work? Uh, no, I think would be yes. <laughs> the answer I would give. I mean, it's really fascinating, right? Because I don't know what a digital nomad is, to be clear. I'm not really sure. Like, they just, do they live in the internet and they're not like a physical person? I'm not totally clear on what a digital nomad is. European expats, I, we have some. Um, they also are pretty well-banked, I think, for the most part. I mean, I think the challenges that you sort of touched on are, are the right ones, right? I mean, just kind of ticking down the list. Yeah, are you going to be able to pay the same salaries for talent in the U.S. that you are in the Netherlands? Probably not. Are you going to be able to acquire customers with a relatively skinny marketing budget in a market where everyone is trying to acquire anyone who has any interest in opening up a new bank account? Probably not. Are you going to be able to charge a fee for products that otherwise are free to consumers and that we've spent the last, really the last few decades, training consumers to expect for free? Probably not. I mean, I think that the thing that probably makes me the most nervous out of all of it, and it, it's very much the same as Chime and Varo and Dave and Moneylion, all of these different companies, really anyone except like SoFi and Lending Club, that are sort of on the path or have already gotten a bank charter in the U.S., you have to be able to lend money in the U.S. to make money as a bank. I mean, I just, I really don't see any other way to do this. We know that interchange-only models don't work. Obviously, interchange is higher in the U.S. than it is in Europe, so you have that. But we don't pay fees in the U.S. for these accounts. I would be curious to understand from your perspective as a customer, I mean, this is sort of a overly simplistic question, but like, what is it that bank that bunk does? Like, like if, if you were trying to sell me on it as you're going to love this bank account, it does X, Y, and Z, like, like sell me on it. Like why, why will it as just a product stand out in the U S market, given the plethora of other options that we already have? I mean, you used to work in marketing. This was your job. I, I feel very confident in you. I mean, the challenge is there isn't much differentiation, right? So if you're saying our, you know, the target market is expats and, and digital nomads. Yeah. And aside, digital nomads are the, uh, you know, sort of like YouTube influencer creative class who doesn't like live anywhere. They just travel from Bali to Tulum working on their laptops and coffee shops. That sounds amazing. That's, uh, yeah. Uh, maybe if I were 10 years younger. <laughs> yeah, but trust me, once you have kids, that's pretty much not an <laughs> yeah. option for a number of yeah. reasons. So I'm jealous of those who live that digital nomad life. So I mean, I, I think the pitch would be something along the lines of we're going to build a stack of financial services catering to the specific needs of this audience. So, okay, if this is kind of like uh, somebody who's a solopreneur or operating essentially a small business, uh -huh. could you start to bundle in things like you know, accounting services, invoicing, you know, tax kind of stuff, maybe travel insurance, uh, in the U.S., health insurance. Obviously, you know, Bunk is not going to provide it itself, but kind of a, a marketplace kind of approach of connecting this audience with services they might need, certainly foreign exchange slash international payments. You know, the challenge I have is this audience 
you know, EU expat slash digital nomad, on the one hand, they probably skew significantly higher income than like a Chime or a Vero customer, which is good. Yeah. But to your point, on the other hand, they're probably already very well banked and have a selection of providers they use, you know, in their home country slash in the U.S. Yeah. And so you're you're playing against, you know, established banks in the U.S. that give away a lot of this stuff for free, like the core checking account kind of stuff. And specialty fintech providers like Wise, TransferWise, they did just raise their rates for remittances yeah. from euros. Yeah, I, I send money from euros, so I was <laughs> not happy about that. And so I think it's challenging because, you know, users are going to be hesitant to switch, particularly to pay a fee to switch unless they feel like that value is there. Mm -hmm. And those pieces I just sort of laid out, you know, invoicing, payments, remittances, et cetera, it's unlikely that Bunk will launch with any of those when they open up shop in the U.S. It'll probably be basically, you know, a a bank account comparable to any other, you know, sort of neobank product that's catering to this sort of freelancer small business segment. And one last additional point on the lending that you mentioned, their charter app specifically says they would not do lending during their de novo period, which I believe is the first three years. No lending. Ah, well, yeah, I would be very curious to understand how the OCC and FDIC and other regulators would view that business plan, right? Because I think one thing that's maybe misunderstood a little bit about the de novo route is you're essentially going to regulators and pitching your business in, in somewhat of a similar way that like you pitch to VCs, right? Except that instead of saying, grow, 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 and we won't care about profitability, they want to hear a pitch about how do you become a sustainable business? Who is your management team? What background do they have? What is your path from not being profitable or in the case of Bunk, being profitable in a different market to being profitable here? And like they they really ask you to sort of map out what that three-year journey looks like and, you know, essentially convince them why you're going to be a viable business, right? I mean, the de novo route is really, the questions that get asked around it are really safety and soundness questions, right? Like if we're going to add you yes, to sir. the constellation of regulated U.S. banks, we need to know that we're adding a stable member of that club that's going to be around for a while, right? They And especially now, and I don't know how regulators' attitudes around de novo charters have evolved post-SVB, but like now is not the time I wouldn't think that they would be super jazzed about adding more sort of shaky business models to the roster of regulated U.S. banks. So I struggle a little bit to see, I mean, even the charter application going through and them getting approved for a de novo charter, I it seems that that by itself seems like a stretch. And then if they get it, which would be interesting to see, I would just be very curious kind of to your point about how they rebuilt their product stack sort of somewhat starting over in the U.S., right? You'd obviously, um, you know, be probably working with a slightly different technology stack. I'm looking at their website right now. I mean, they definitely have a lot of features listed on here. And to your point, there is a category of features that are very like solo entrepreneurial. So you know, have like a personal payment link that you can send to people to get paid, have the ability to scan invoices so that you can pay businesses, have the ability to, um, you know, sort of automate your finances and move money around. So, I mean, it does sound like a pretty sort of robust sort of digital banking product, at least in, in the Netherlands. But then it's interesting because they have all of these other layers to the product that are like slightly different packages. So they have the sort of international traveler version of it. They have the budgeting and savings and PFM version of it. They apparently have like a green version of it where you can become CO2 free. And so kind of competing a little bit with the aspirations of the world. So I, I guess looking at their website and their different product packages, it kind of feels like they're trying all of the different neobanking outfits on to see which ones are going to fit better. And Again, Netherlands sounds like a, a more sort of friendly market to do this in, whereas the U.S. is just cutthroat, you know, and I worry for them. Yeah, I mean, last comment, we can go on to the next piece is, you know, I mentioned Vero. I would imagine Vero's difficulties cast a long shadow over the prospect of granting a new de novo charter. You know, even if the business model they're pitching is different, yeah. you know, Vero has clearly struggled in whatever it is, you know, that was uh -huh. their business plan when they pitched the OCC and the FDIC, you know, 
they're several years into that journey and it's not looking any more promising. Yeah. And, you know, not that it's, you know, quote unquote fair for Bunk to have to answer that, but it, it surely will color the kinds of questions and the willingness in evaluating, you know, this application. But we'll see what happens. Do you want to take us to our uh, our next one? I'd love to. Yeah. So um, next one on the list is our friends at Plaid who launched a new feature within their transfer product, their payment product, that allows for businesses to instantly distribute funds to consumers. So, you know, think about really any sort of payment disbursement use case B2C, whether it's, you know, insurance payouts or, you know, dispersing funds for, um, you know, some type of like, you know, home ownership association. It really could be anything. And the, the value proposition is that that disbursement can now be instantaneous. So this is Plaid's first sort of foray into real-time payments. To enable this feature, they partnered with The Clearinghouse, which operates a instant payment network called RTP, Real-Time Payments. Network has been up and running for a few years now, um, well in advance of when FedNow is supposedly going to be live and available this summer. RTP covers about 60 to 70% of U.S. bank accounts. Uh, it's very well sort of enabled across the larger banks who are the owners of the clearinghouse. A lot of smaller community banks in the U.S. have not jumped on board RTP for various competitive concerns. And, you know, I just I thought this was a really interesting product. I mean, obviously, this conjures images of the famous Visa Plaid volcano drawing and Visa's concerns about Plaid getting into payments and into other sort of value-added areas on top of data aggregation I do think the fact that this can be sort of very seamlessly linked to Plaid's other products makes it fairly compelling because if you have, you know, consumers that are are getting paid by a business, well, as they're signing up, they're connecting their bank account. Plaid can do a lot of the sort of verification and sort of integration work there. So it makes it a fairly streamlined process for consumers to sign up and then to just instantly get the money wired to them. I do think kind of to the visa point, this is fairly competitive with like Visa Direct, which is a sort of payment rail that Visa has enabled that they've really focused on sort of selling to fintech customers. So the same sort of customer base that Plaid is going after with this. So I do think that it is potentially an interesting competitive product. I have lots of questions about sort of some of the specific choices that they made here. But um, Jason, before I get into any of that, what was your kind of key takeaways from this? So I've been trying to digest this information and, and contextualize it in this sort of like wider conversation about, you know, Clearinghouse RTP and, and FedNow. You know, my, my background is not in, you know, payments, so I haven't been like hands-on working in that space. So it takes a little bit more work for me to sort of step back and think like, what does this really mean? Yeah, yep. So my understanding of, of looking at this Plat announcement is basically the main thing that it's doing is making it easier for a Plaid customer to integrate or execute payments via RTP, mm -hmm. right? And this feels roughly comparable or sort of Plaid starting to move into the space of what I would call like payment orchestration. Mm -hmm. So in my head, I think of, and forgive me if it's Sila or Sila, I never know how to pronounce that company. Shamir, right? Yeah. Yeah, Shamir. But the idea that if you are a company, whether a financially focused mm -hmm. non-bank or say something like a Airbnb, Etsy, whatever, a lot of your business revolves around mm -hmm. moving money. And instead of having to go and build these integrations with banks and sort of build a lot of this logic and, and compliance capability, et cetera, yourself having this middleware layer, this payment orchestrator that sits in between. Uh -huh. And so that layer, whether it's Sila or Plaid or Move or whatever, sort of handles the logic of, okay, like you want to do X and send money to this account. What are the mechanisms available? And presumably, you know, when FedNow launches, you know, Plaid will go there as well. But you could imagine, okay, I'm building a new fintech. I integrate with Plaid. Plaid has, you know, what we all know it for, which is the bank account and data. But now with that same integration, I can say I need to disperse this money 
And Plaid automatically knows, is this an account that is enabled for Clearinghouse RTP, FedNow, same-day ACH, Visa Direct? And based on what is available, the urgency of the payment, the cost, you know, fraud controls, et cetera, can sort of intelligently and automatically route that payment is kind of where I imagine, you know, Plaid, as well as other other companies, other competitors are trying to go. Yeah, no, I think that's if I had if I have that totally no, wrong. I mean, well, so me. I <laughs> won't correct you, but I also am not a deep expert in payments, yeah, as yeah, you know. Yeah. So listeners can feel free to reach out to Jason and I and tell us why we're wrong. But I, I mean, from my perspective, yes. I think that analysis is right. And you know, it's very much this kind of payment orchestration playbook, which is, you know, you build an API that everybody uses for something, right? In the case of Plaid, it's, you know, connecting to a consumer's bank account and getting that information. You drive a lot of usage through that API and get a lot of adoption of it. You leverage the data and the transactional information that you get through all of that volume that's running through that API to train machine learning algorithms and build out all of these value-added services. And then you pile those services back into the API to make it that much more valuable, right? So it's this sort of like, compounding advantage that you get by offering a service that's easy to use, easy to integrate, and provide some novel value. And so, I mean, it reminds me a lot of Stripe as well, right? I mean, Stripe starts by doing one very specific thing, which is integrating with the card networks and enabling, you know, businesses to easily accept payments. But they don't stop there. They use all of that volume running through their pipes to train up and build additional products that they then make available through that or sort of complementary APIs. So, this sort of compounding advantage that you build in the infrastructure space by getting volume early, I think is exactly the same playbook that that Plaid is following. And, you know, by the way, it's not surprising that Stripe has been getting into, you know, bank account aggregation stuff as well, right? I mean, this is, all of these are just different levers for getting adoption and sort of strengthening this sort of fintech infrastructure API to rule them all, which is what everyone seems to sort of be trying to build. I did think that, the integration with the clearinghouse was notable. And the reason I thought that was interesting was that if you sort of take a step back and look at what Plaid has been doing in the market over the years, a lot of what they've been doing has been pissing off the big banks. And they've gotten into a number (laughs) of scraps of various kinds with a lot of the big banks. I think you could characterize the uh, relationship between Plaid and say, the top 20 banks in the U.S. over the last, you know, 10 years has been mostly pretty unfriendly. Um, In fact, when uh, Visa announced they were going to buy Plaid, literally just like right after that, the Clearinghouse, which again is owned by the 22, 22 of the largest banks in the U.S., announced that it was acquiring a majority stake in Acquia, which is a open banking data aggregator that sort of spun out of uh, FIS and is a a banking sort of answer to Plaid in a lot of ways. So I think the clearinghouse and the big banks that own it have not always had the most friendly relationship with Plaid. However, since that Visa acquisition did not go through, I think that Plaid has been working very, very hard. And to their credit, I think they've done this very well to build much more friendly and productive relationships with a lot of the big banks. And we've seen some announcements around Plaid announcing partnerships and integrations with some of these big banks. Behind the scenes, I think a lot more work is being done there. And I think them choosing to go with the clearinghouse for this, even though FedNow is supposedly coming fairly soon and they probably could have waited if they really wanted to or had to, the fact that they're doing this with the clearinghouse, I think, is indicative of these parties within financial services having a much friendlier relationship. And if I'm Visa, uh, having missed out on acquiring Plaid and knowing that the banks I work with get value from my services, but also uh, get pissed off at me from time to time for various things that I do and and are, are certainly exploring the idea of like, well, what if we enabled account-to-account payments? And what if we didn't necessarily have a world in which everything ran on cards in the future? We know Chase, for one, is sort of actively contemplating that potential future if I'm Visa, this makes me a little nervous to see sort of such a friendly relationship between Plaid and the Clearinghouse. So I think it will be interesting to see if they, uh, if and how they integrate other rails. The other thing I was going to say, Jason, that I'd like your take on this is kind of going to your point about how you build out all of this infrastructure. Plaid also has a product called Signal, which is basically sort of a, a layer on top of sort of regular old ACH payments. 
And the idea is basically that it uses all of the data that Plaid has and some machine learning algorithms that it's built to basically risk score all of the potential ACH transactions that a client could make. And for transactions that are scored as a very low risk, it actually will functionally move the money in real time, meaning that they will take or they will sort of enable their client to take the credit risk of crediting the funds immediately, even though ACH is not a real-time payments network and the funds aren't being moved instantly. And I I thought that was a really interesting product. They kind of referenced it somewhat obliquely in their announcement for this new feature. I think that's a really interesting complementary product to this because in a way, it's providing the same value. It's just doing it in a way that's sort of risk-safe first, right? And so a question I have with real-time payments, and again, not being a payments expert, is there are fraud concerns to all of this as well, right? And so if you're enabling this through the clearinghouse and the money is actually going to move instantaneously, like, don't you still want to have risk scoring on those transactions? Don't you want to know that the money you're moving before you move it is, you know, not fraudulent? And so I, I didn't see a lot in this announcement around the fraud verification kind of piece that I would assume you would want to wrap around this as well. I mean, that, that's an interesting question. The the cynical side of my brain says as you move into a truly real-time payment who is the liability shifting onto if that payment was fraudulently induced and right now the answer appears to be the consumer right if it's a push payment yep whereas in the ACH scenario you're describing, which I actually think is quite fascinating. I mean, I experienced that as a user. Again, I feel like I'm just going to plug Wise because I use it all the time. But Wise looks like it's sending money instantly. You know, it shows up in my euro-denominated bank account immediately, even though in the back end it's initiating an ACH pull out of my American account that's not settled typically until the next day. How is it doing that? It's explicitly actually using Plaid to look at my American bank account the and there. say, Jason's trying to move $1,000. Is there enough money there to do it? And so as a consumer, I mean, that's kind of like a janky workaround, but it, it does what it's supposed to do most of the time. And you have this feeling of, of real time, even though you and I and people listening know that in reality, it's not. Well, and that's, I mean, that's that's functionally the way that like the um, two-day early access to paychecks works too, right? It's like, I know the money's there. It's going to take a couple days to get there, but there's no reason we can't credit the money into their account now because we're pretty much 100% confident that the money is following just a couple days late. So to your point, it makes it the same roughly for the consumer. They're getting the money when they need it. And there's just a little bit of risk being taken on the back end, but like, you have confidence in that risk you're taking. Whereas with real-time payments, I don't know where that confidence comes from. Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. I mean, there's plenty of other use cases. The, the like the Robinhood account funding is another one or a crypto account, Coinbase, where it's like, okay, we're going to pull this money via ACH, but like, we want you to get your dopamine hit of buying that Dogecoin now or buy that meme stock now. So yeah, you initiate an ACH poll. We'll let you start gambling. I mean, investing <laughs> that money. And we've done the analysis to feel confident that that transaction is going to clear. So to your point, as you move to, you know, RTP, uh, to quote Simon, faster payments equals faster fraud, trademark. Yep. You know, it feels like at the moment that that risk is actually shifting to the consumer, where if you've been induced to make this payment and it was through trickery, a scam, phishing, whatever, like the consumer is going to be the one stuck holding that at the moment. And to your point, it seems like it would be an interesting idea, you know, whether it's Plaid or Sardine or Unit 21 or whatever other great fraud screening company, you know, to have the infrastructure in place to help sort of flag higher risk transactions so that that consumer can sort of be warned before they authorize this push payment. Right. I totally agree. And I, I wonder if that's why this initial use case was focused on B2C disbursements, right? Because maybe like just by the nature of that use case, the fraud vectors are a little narrower and you can sort of have a better handle on that. But I do think as Plaid inevitably, I would imagine, expands the scope of what they're doing in payments. And this is not going to be the only thing they do in payments. Obviously, they already have a bunch of products there. This isn't going to be the last like real-time payments thing that they do either. That's the thing I'm kind of keeping very closely in mind as I watch that is just 
as you expand out these different use cases, and yeah, you have each pull, you have ACH push, you have, you know, B2B use cases, you have, you know, C to C use cases, right? You have P2P, which is its own whole category where you see a lot of these problems today. That liability associated with the money moving in real time is something that I'm paying attention to. And I, I know for a fact that regulators are too. So that'll be uh, that'll be an interesting one. Should we um, wrap up with some can't let it goes? Yes. Okay. Yes, Do you want to go first or would you like me to go first? I will go first and, okay. and I can keep it brief. My can't let it go. I feel like we've probably <laughs> talked about this before. I've been getting a lot of inbound uh, reporter questions about Twitter's super app yeah. ambitions. Generally, it's a one-line email. Is this going to happen? You know, stop trying to make super apps happen. I mean, the short answer, broadly speaking, is I don't think anybody in the U.S. market is particularly likely to be successful at developing a like a Chinese or a Southeast Asian style super app for a whole host of reasons. My soundbite is, you know, iOS is the super app, right? Yep. We don't need like a layer of app inside of that. And then specifically, sort of like the Elon or the Twitter question, you know, the, the super app concept relies on an ecosystem approach where third parties develop and deploy like applications or mini programs. Elon has moved in the exact opposite of that direction. I don't want to go on some like free speech maximalist tangent because that's not what this show is. Hey, man, you're on Substack. You publish on Substack. You got to stand up for yourself. Yeah, yeah, I know. But he's, I mean, even from like an API access perspective, it's moving more towards being a closed loop ecosystem rather than an open one. And a, a volatile one at that too, right? Super volatile. Yeah. And a not particularly like reliable or stable one. So if the idea is, you know, you're going to develop, I, I need to find a synonym for ecosystem because I say it too much. If you're going to develop this application platform where you have some services and you partner for some services, you know who's trustworthy and reliable at doing that? Apple. You know who's not trustworthy and reliable at doing that? Yep. Elon Musk and Twitter. So I just, you know, maybe you start to see some, you know, sort of creator monetization, which I think they already have like tips and some sort of micro subscription kind of things. Are you going to see anything that looks like a true super app? No. Are you going to see anything that even looks like a sort of bank account adjacent? I highly doubt it. And I will I will stop there. I promise. No, it's great. I, I totally agree with your rant. I also would like to just ban the term super app. Let's just not use it because it no one knows what it is. Everyone uses it wrongly. So like let's just stop. As it relates to Twitter, I think your point is exactly right. You know, we're all personally addicted to Twitter, but if you're like a business and you're making business decisions that have nothing to do with sort of your personal social media preferences. You're not going to look at Twitter and go, that's a great platform to build on. Like, that's the environment I want to bet on. I'm going to take that infrastructure risk. Like, no way in hell are you going to do that. So, like, that's not going to happen. And the other thing about Elon Musk specifically is, I think the soundbite with him specifically is, if it's a hardware thing, then he's going to think in a Tesla, uh, SpaceX, first principles way. If it's a software thing, he's going to think payments, right? And, like, to him, to Elon Musk, every software thing is a payments thing. And I just don't think that that's a valid way to think. It's not 1995 anymore, right? Like PayPal's already a thing. Uh, we've moved on from that era, like payments and software and fintech, it looks different than it did 20 years ago. And he doesn't seem to have updated his mental model around that. And I think that's going to be a problem. Okay, so mine, I'll go really quick, but yes, it's Open Exchange, uh, which is a new platform that's live. It's called Open Exchange or OPNX. It was founded by the co-founders of Three Arrows Capital, uh, or 3AC, which you might be familiar with for having basically initiated the meltdown of the entire crypto ecosystem last year. They were the counterparty to a lot of the uh, exchanges that were magically producing all of this yield that everyone was enjoying in 2020 and 2021. 3AC was the one taking insane risks on the other side of all of that yield, which then obviously did not work out. That then rippled through the rest of the crypto ecosystem. A whole bunch of the crypto exchanges and other platforms like FTX and Celsius collapsed as a result of that. And so the founders of uh, Three Arrows Capital are 
sad about that and think that they uh, should do something to fix that. So they said in a quote, or I should say the CEO of this company that these guys founded, said in a quote, there are over 20 million Clements worldwide for FTX and Celsius and other platforms that are stuck waiting years just to access their funds because the platforms are bankrupt. We think they deserve better. So what they're launching is a marketplace, the open exchange that allows for the buying and selling of claims on cryptocurrency that is currently trapped in all of these platforms that have gone bankrupt. So if you have a claim for money that is locked up in FTX that you're worried you'll never see again, you can sell it for pennies on the dollar to the people who initially crashed the crypto economy and caused you to lose all that money in the first place. I don't even really know what to say about this, except that finance, I think at its worst, tends to attract a very sort of smart, amoral type of person to it. And I think you could look at the evolution of financial services and all of the regulation that we've put around it. And one lens of that is we're trying to sort of make finance boring and tedious and as safe as possible, trying to sort of nudge those psychopaths to go other places. And crypto turned out to be the answer to the following question. What would happen if, poof, you took all those regulations away and made finance global 24-7 and anonymous by default? And I got to say, man, I just, I hate it. I hate it here. I just can't stand this. Yeah, I mean, I the need to financialize everything to the nth degree, as a human, I'm finding very exhausting. Yes. I mean, I don't play a lot of video games or spend a lot of time in sort of like Web3 world, but the idea that like, no, 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 no. We can take this thing that you like doing, like whatever, playing Wordle, and now we're going to financialize it and you're going to earn tokens and the tokens are a pseudo equity stake and then you can trade those on an exchange <laughs> and then we'll have some derivatives of it. And like by playing Wordle, you're like investing in the community and it's like, can we just have nice things that are not like have derivatives attached to them? Totally. Can I just watch like a basketball <laughs> game and not have like ads coming in in the middle of the basketball game telling me what I can live bet during the battle? I just want to watch the basketball game. Like I don't... I don't want these things. I, I will end this rant by just quoting Marilyn Monroe, who said one of my favorite things ever, which is, I don't care about money. I just want to be wonderful. And I think like we need so much more of that, like stop the financialization of everything. I don't care about money. I just want to be wonderful. It would be nice if we just built wonderful products and stopped building financial services components into every single one of them. I know I work in fintech. That's what we do. But like, we need to draw a line somewhere. I agree. Uh, okay. <laughs> Should we leave it there? Well, uh, it's good to get off my chest. Um, Jason, as always, this was a delight. We will do this again soon. And uh, I wish you a great deal of enjoyment in your beautiful spring weather. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.